narrow, uneven road ahead. That's the sign that I chose to ignore while driving in our compact car on our recent vacation. Now we managed, we managed to return the car in one piece, but if we hadn't, we couldn't have said that we weren't warned. You know, our days are, our days are full of warnings, are they not? Lights come on in our cars, alerting us that something is wrong. We're told not to operate heavy machinery when taking this medica medication. You hunters, if there are any out there, you hunters are, know how to, how to look for the signs, the warning signs that a bear might be nearby. Right, thanks to the, to the Food and, and, and Drug Administration, it seems that everything has a warning. But who's going to tell us if we're spiritually in danger? Who's going to tell us to, to turn around because the path that we're on leads to death? Well, that's what Jesus does in our passage this morning. He's once again at the house of a Pharisee for a meal on the Sabbath. And from what Luke tells us, that this was not a meal where, where Jesus could unwind. Luke tells us at the beginning of, of chapter 14 that when Jesus arise, arrived, the Pharisees were, it says, watching him carefully. And just as a helpful aside, when you have guests over, don't do that. That's a very weird thing to do. And at this meal, there was a, there was a man with, with dropsy. This was a man whose body would have been swollen with fluid, a, a symptom a symptom most likely of congestive heart failure or kidney disease. Men like this weren't invited to meals at the homes of Pharisees. So it's reasonable to think that this man was, was brought there by the Pharisees uh, to test Jesus, to lay some sort of trap that Jesus would, would fall into. Well, Jesus... Jesus ignores their attempts to test him. He heals the man. He shows mercy. And after sending the man away, Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he asks them, he says, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? What Jesus knew about these men was that the law, their interpretation of the law, would never stand in the way of them protecting their comfort or their property. But when someone like this man needs help, all of a sudden, the law becomes their excuse for not lifting a finger. Right? It's amazing, isn't it, how we can be excessively strict, excessively legalistic, focused on the law as a way to protect ourselves and excessively lenient when we stand to benefit. What Jesus exposed was that law-keeping wasn't the main priority of these men. Now, the main priority was their comfort. It was their property. And they had become quite skilled at twisting the law to serve that end. These were men whose compassion, 
extended no further than their noses. And that's a spiritually dangerous place to occupy. The Pharisees perceived themselves to be the law keepers of their generation, but their lack of mercy and compassion for someone outside of their orbit revealed that they were on a path that ends in hell. So this is a meal where both the guest and the host needed to turn around and be healed of their spiritual sickness. And that's what Jesus aims to do for everyone invited. So let's turn to Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 14 to hear how the rest of this dinner party went. Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will, will both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, and when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. We see that Jesus gives his first warning to, to the guest in verses 7 through 11. And I think you could summarize the warning like this. Warning, pursuit of man's praise will leave you eternally empty. You see, at a meal like this, there would have been, there would have been multiple couches around a table, a place where the guests could recline. And everyone knew which couch and which spot on the couch was regarded as most and least honorable. Just as today, you know who's closest to the bride and groom by where the guests are seated at the rehearsal or reception. You know those guests that the bride and groom didn't think would attend and they're tucked in that back corner. And of all the things to notice at a dinner party, Jesus knows where the guest wanted to sit. They wanted the seat that was most esteemed in the eyes of the culture. Now, I doubt it was this picture of everyone gunning and wrestling and pushing each other out of the way for the, for the highest seat of honor. But perhaps they were just quietly seeking out that place that was, you know, one or two places higher than the one that they had at the last party. Because we can be quite strategic in our social maneuvering, can't we? 
right? And Jesus didn't criticize the guests for wearing the wrong clothes to the party. He never critiqued a host for how clean their house was. But what Jesus does criticize, what he does shine a massive spotlight on are the motivations of our hearts. Because Jesus knows we are motivated. We are all motivated by what we love. We will all make the time and spend the required money to have and do what we love. Isn't it the case that no one's priorities are a secret? Or at least they don't stay a secret very long. It's very clear what we prize and we will chase our treasure to no end. And whenever Jesus gives a warning about pursuing an earthly treasure like the praise of men, he never says to abandon the pursuit because you'll never get it. And the whole endeavor will just be a big waste of your time. No, his warning is because we can secure treasures on earth. What we count truly valuable can be parked in our garages, it can hang around our necks, it can reside in some account. We should know that the treasures and rewards of this life, they are within your reach. You can get likes, you can build up a following, you can turn eyeballs if that's your treasure. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6 about those who pursue righteousness for the praise of men. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. If the reward is for others to applaud your religiosity, there's a way to get it. If the reward is to be the focus of the conversation, you can make it happen. Doesn't mean it won't take work or it won't take time, but eventually we can chase down what we're after. And Jesus' warning is that we are in grave spiritual danger when any earthly reward is more desirable than the reward of being exalted by God the Father in the life to come. God does not honor those who love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. That leads us to ask, doesn't it? Why would God be so jealous? In other words, why is it wrong to put a greater value on the reward of earthly praise than the reward that is stored up for us in heaven? Because what Jesus is teaching here is that God will condemn those who love having the best seats in this life. Those who are more happy in those seats than in their relationship with God. 
We heard Jesus say last week to the Pharisees, he said, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. What Jesus is teaching is that God is rightly, God is rightly jealous for our attention, for our devotion. But why? Well, imagine, imagine a, a research scientist makes some major medical breakthrough that will improve the lives of millions and millions and millions of people. Would you call her selfish for zealously promoting her discovery? No, it would be evil. It would be evil not to disclose the breakthrough and do whatever you could to get that news out to the world. So friends, if God is the most perfect and supreme and glorious being, then it would be deeply selfish. It would be deeply unloving. It would be evil of God not to promote himself and call us to be utterly committed to him. Matthew Barrett as a theologian in his book, None Greater, he says this. He says, if God did not draw attention to himself as the supreme being, then we would not experience the greatest joy there is in life. God's commanding that he receive all glory is the most caring, loving thing he could ever do for us. Because only then will we find ourselves truly satisfied in life. You see, when we make man's praise ultimate and supreme or, or any earthly kind of reward, what we are doing is we are promoting a lie about the one whose image we bear. And the lie is that the supreme and most glorious being cannot satisfy like the best seat at some dinner party that he can't satisfy us like the comments that we get on our latest post. God is jealous for our hearts because, because he is perfectly good and loving. Not warning us about the futility and emptiness of earthly treasures, that would be cruel. Right, calling us to abandon valuables that are just going to rust and eventually be destroyed is evidence of God's ultimate concern for his creatures. God is not interested in plundering you. He is interested in blessing you and exalting you and doing you good by calling you to himself. See, when Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, he's telling us how, how we get off this path that ends in eternal shame. And the way off is humility. But have you ever, have you ever thought, how, how does humility happen? You know, when I was in middle school, I was on a very 
humble basketball team. And do you know why we were so humble? Because we kept getting beat every time that we played. True humility is the result of spending your time with one who outshines you in every way. Humility, as one author says, is the downward disposition that is brought about by such a God-entranced vision of the self. It is the internal frame of the soul that results from seeing ourselves before the face of God. You see, we never, we never aim for humility. It doesn't really work very well to, to get out of bed and say, today, I will be humble. We aim to know God as he has revealed himself in his word. And so since no one's playing golf today, you're going to be inside, maybe spend some time reading and meditating on passages like Job 38 to 41 or Isaiah 40. Revelation 4 and 5, passages where we will put ourselves under the greatness and the majesty and the beauty of God. It will do your soul good. But the great paradox, the thing that's surprising to many people is that a God entranced vision of the self, it's not going to leave you in the dust. Right? Viewing yourself in the light of other people will do that. But God's word shows us that God's plan is to raise us up. It's to give us a far better seat. One in the heavenly places. God's ultimate plan for you is your exaltation over sin and death. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Due to his own grace, God has purchased our eternal honor with the precious blood of his son. Right, friends, what we believe is that we have all rebelled against a good and just God and thus deserve from him only severity. But out of his own grace, his own counsel, God has provided the only way for those who have rebelled against him to find peace and true honor. And that way is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so I wonder, in what ways has the pursuit of man's praise left you embarrassed? What has it stolen from you over the years? How has it led you to, to bulldoze those who stood between you and your treasure? We all know it's a path worth leaving behind because there is, there is true honor. There is true honor for those whose faces are not occupied with the tables of this world, but that they are directed towards the banquet table that belongs to us through the merit of Christ. 
And so if things weren't uncomfortable enough at this dinner, Jesus turns to the host and gives his second warning. Warning. Be on guard against getting repaid in this life. So first off, Jesus is not outlawing family dinners. I don't know if that comes as good news or bad news for you. But he's not saying to never have another meal with your friends. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the motivations of our hearts. So what does Jesus know about his host? What was his purpose in inviting all of those folks to dinner? Jesus knows our flesh. And he knows that this man's motivation was to secure his spot at the next neighborhood dinner party. He loved getting repaid. Here was a man with a home, obviously the means to provide food for a good-sized group of people, and he used all of those resources with an eye towards himself. He leveraged his wealth for his own gain to make sure that down the road, he would get his invitation. When we deny what Jesus exposes here, that as John Piper puts it, there is in every human heart, my heart and your heart, a terrible and powerful tendency to live by the law of earthly repayment, the law of reciprocity. When we deny that, we remain in spiritual danger. For if you show no mercy in this life, if you never use your money, your homes, your abilities for those who will never be able to throw you a party, Jesus is saying there will be no mercy or comfort for you in the life to come. Shortly after this dinner, Jesus tells a parable about a poor man named Lazarus who laid at the gate of a rich man. The rich man, we're told, was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. And what we learn is that this rich man spent nothing on Lazarus, never lifted a finger to try to alleviate his suffering. And when the rich man died, he went to hell. Friends, Jesus is being very practical here. He's asking us to evaluate whether fine linens in this life will make the torments of hell bearable. He's saying to consider whether pursuing only the increase of your comfort is all that there is to live for. Is that a risk worth taking? But notice, what motivation does Jesus give us for fighting against this desire to be ruled by earthly repayment? I think surprisingly, he actually appeals to our self-interest. Look again at verse 13. He says, when you give this feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind... And you will be 
you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I think what Jesus is saying here is the way to increase your eternal comfort is to focus on increasing the comfort of your neighbor now. Because those efforts are not overlooked by God. We know that we are not, we are not justified before God. We are not made right with God by our works to alleviate the suffering that is around us. But we should be encouraged to know that God does not forget. He does not belittle. He does not dismiss what we do for the good of our neighbor to his glory. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple. Truly, I say to you, he will, be, he will by no means lose his reward. Friends, if a cup of cold water is all you have to give to alleviate someone's pain and discomfort, God does not look down on your gift. We should be encouraged. We should encourage others and one another to look for those ways where we can serve and help reduce the suffering in this life. Friends, we are never going to outmatch the goodness and graciousness of God. We will never find God to be insolvent. We will never give up more than what God will give us at the resurrection. And the greatest reward that awaits us is that when we are raised from our graves, we will be brought by the power of the Holy Spirit into conformity with Christ. And that means no more indwelling sin for you. That means no more shame or confusion, no more struggle or depression, no more sadness, no more terror. It will mean only glory. What troubles and heartaches in this life will not be cured by sharing a new world with those who love completely like Jesus? Do you see what that means? That means that we'll never be betrayed. We'll never utter a foolish word We'll never have a thought that we want to bury and keep secret from other people. We'll never commit any act that we'll look back on with regret. We'll have no reason to ever break off a relationship. It will be a world of perfect love that will never come to an end. And so I think back, why... Why did I not turn the car around when I read narrow, uneven road ahead? The thing is because I thought the destination ahead was worth the risk. I didn't want to waste time retracing my steps. Ultimately, I put more trust in myself than the warning sign. And I got away with it. 
But Jesus' warnings are different. We can't ignore them and make it out alive. You see, we, we turn around and give heed to his warnings when we give up trying to determine for ourselves the path that will bring us joy, the path to security, the path to comfort, the path to honor. Jesus says at the end of this chapter that anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We need to continually give up thinking that we know apart from Christ which roads are safe, which road is going to bring life, and which road will bring death. We need to abandon the idea that it's always in our power to know where danger lies, but to trust that Jesus knows what is in our best interest. He gave up his body and blood for us to have it. There's only one way out of this spiritual danger. And that is to go to the one who gives the warning. To rely on him for the help and the redemption that he has. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, what he purchased by giving up his life on our behalf. We ask that you give us the grace to trust in him, the grace to take his great and wise words and to put our trust in them, to put them into action this week. We ask in his name, amen.